Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Hello, and happy holidays. Neil Garfield here, and this is Thursday, December 19th, 2019, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. (coughs) No judge is truly independent or unbiased. They're all human beings with a law license, and they're all under tremendous pressure of various types. And they're all required to follow the law of procedure, which is exactly what trips up so many pro se homeowners and even lawyers. A lot of what is criticized as bias is really simply the judge following the law. This is really aggravating and frustrating to a lot of homeowners who in their heart know that the foreclosure against them is wrongful or fraudulent. (coughs) The the mere allegation, here's what the law is, the mere allegation of an unpaid debt implies injury. In fact, in many of the forms approved by the Supreme Court of the state of Florida and other states, the, the constitutional requirement that the party has to state that they were injured is implied simply by saying that they have an unpaid debt. Documents that appear to provide foundation for the claim are taken as true, at least at first, and they're presumed valid and true if if they're facially valid. Now, sometimes they may look facially valid at first glance, which is why you really need to look at them closely, and sometimes more than once, like when you have several layers of signature on a document purporting to be an assignment or endorsement or what have you. (coughs) But simply denying that the debt is owned by them is not nearly enough. Your denial does not change the burden of proof. People keep asking the wrong question, but they do have the right idea. They're asking, how do I prove they didn't pay for the debt? And the answer is, you don't prove that. Stick to the basics, but try to understand the complex transactions behind the curtain, because that's where you get your cues to create a successful defense strategy based on the basics. You do what they do. You use their tactics in reverse. You need to raise the inference or even a presumption, a legal presumption, 
that they didn't pay for the debt. When they lose their presumption, they're already in trouble because they have to prove it. If you raise the inference that they didn't pay for it, now they have a higher burden. But how do you do that? That's what we'll be talking about tonight. They will never prove they own the debt because they can't. They'll never prove that they paid for the debt because they can't. Instead, they'll continue to argue what, that they are entitled to legal presumptions arising from facially valid documents. But you are allowed to challenge those presumptions if and only if you follow the rules. So the real answer is procedure, and specifically we're talking about discovery. The objective is to change the burden of proof such that they must prove their case with facts, not presumptions. We all know that. But the second and more important and more realistic objective is to get the judge on your side procedurally. Because the judge's bias, when he, as he walks, he or she walks into the courtroom, judge's bias will generally prevent them from siding with you on the substance of the claim. As long as the case sees the case as lender versus borrower, your chances are limited. There are two ways that I win cases, and I think this covers most, if not all, of the other lawyers who are winning cases. The first and most popular way is to blow up the robo-witness at trial. The second is by getting ju the judge mad at the opposing lawyers. I find that the second is preferable for my style and it produces more uh, consistent results. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we invite you to hit the donate button on the blog and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show is value for you, if our work on the blog and our radio shows without payment or other support is value to, to you, then chip in. Please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Blowing up the witness. Well, this can, while this can be done, it is subject to the will of the judge and the skill of the lawyer who is cross-examining the robo-witness. So the odds of success are lower than the more tedious strategy of turning the judge against opposing counsel and the opposing parties. But both strategies are effective, and sometimes they can both be used. A good trial lawyer knows how to hone in on trial objections to force the foreclosure mill lawyer off balance and then to attack the testimony of the robo-witness, not just for lack of credibility, but more importantly, for lack of any actual knowledge. More often than not, a sustained objection on lack of foundation, hearsay, leading, etc., 
will leave a newbie lawyer for the foreclosure mill flat-footed and not knowing what to do next. That lawyer has a list, and basically they're looking to follow that list. If you can mess up that list, you're going to start taking control of the narrative in the courtroom. If you move to strike answers or documents after your objection is sustained, you have clear grounds to ask for judgment when the plaintiff rests in a judicial foreclosure case. Banks don't send anyone into court who actually knows anything because if they did, the witness might slip up and say something that could be catastrophic, not only for the case, but potentially all loans claimed to be governed by a remit trust, or worse yet for them, all loans in all similar remit trusts or that are claimed to be in the remit trust. We all know that the loans are basically not in the remit trust. The debts are not. So the banks send in lawyers with virtually no actual knowledge of the situation and witnesses who only know what they have been trained to say. If the lawyers and the witnesses don't know anything, there's virtually no risk to the banks that the lawyers or the witnesses will say anything that could blow up the entire securitization scheme. Knowing that helps in cross-examination because a good trial lawyer knows that the witness is not going to have any answers to any penetrating questions. Those witnesses don't actually know anything and they never did, but the law firms who control the foreclosure mills have scripts prepared for witnesses in which the robo-witness says things that support the illusion that he or she has knowledge and that the things he or she is saying are true. But as we know, the witness does not know anything, and the things asserted are not true. Trial lawyers call that blowing up the witness. When successful, this usually results in judgment for the borrower, but there are also many cases where it results in a dismissal without prejudice because the court decides it never had jurisdiction in the first place. The second way that I win and have one, usually involves a combination of discovery demands and mediation orders. This most often results in actual settlements that are highly beneficial to the homeowner, but not until you really pursue sanctions persistently. Sometimes it can result in an actual judgment, uh, but usually you've pressed the other side to the wall and they have no place to go and they start making offers that are very serious offers. Now, true, you're kind of negotiating with the thief who stole money and allowing the thief to keep part of it. But the way this whole thing is structured and the way the judicial system has treated it, uh, sometimes settlement, even with the thief, is not a bad idea. Mediation orders require the claimant to show up. So in a judicial uh, uh, foreclosure case, it would, be the it would be the plaintiff as the claimant. In a non-judicial case, it would be the beneficiary under the deed of trust. 
that alone is something that probably never happens. But the, the lawyers usually make up stuff to make it look like somebody is there who actually does represent the name claimant. But believe me, there's nobody at the mediation with you who has ever spoken with or is in contact with or is controlled by U.S. Bank or Bank of New York Mellon or whatever trustee uh, is claimed to have some administrative rights over the loan. The lawyer, in fact, represents the servicer. And then, generally speaking, the lawyer has no retainer agreement with the name trustee of what I call the fake remix trust. The servicer, more, than, more often than not, has no servicing agreement at least none with anyone who actually owns the debt. Often the servicer is relying upon a power of attorney that was robo-signed somewhere by someone who didn't know what they were signing or what was in it and had no knowledge or authority over the loan, debt, note, or mortgage. That's why it's called robo-signing. So the argument can be made, especially if you ask the question at mediation, that the claimant never showed up. That opens the door, but it's not going to be dispositive. But it does help, especially when the judge sends you back to mediation with uh, an admonition to your opposing counsel that this time you better have somebody who can settle the case. <clears throat> and when they don't, and when they do the same thing all over again, then the judge starts getting a little angry. And then when they do it a third time, now the judge is really annoyed. And that's where you want it. You want the case, the narrative of the case, to change from lender versus borrower to judge versus the foreclosure mill lawyer. Nobody from U.S. Bank or Mellon Mellon ever shows up at mediation. Mediation orders also require the person authorized to appear on behalf of the claimant to have full power and right to make decisions regarding settlement, whether the settlement is a cash offer from the borrower or a payoff or some other deal. With very rare exceptions, the designated representative has only one thing he or she is authorized to do, and that is to deliver an application for modification, which is no offer at all, which the servicer will process even though they have received no authority to do so from anyone who has any financial interest in the actual debt. Now, just think about that for a second. I've actually asked in mediation, if I offered you $1 less than the total amount you're asking for, payable right now in the next 30 seconds, would you be able to accept that? And the answer was no. They had no authority to do so. So that's not authority to settle, and it's a violation of the court order commanding the parties to attend mediation. Motions for sanctions for failure to appear and motions for sanctions for failure to show up with authority are very effective in getting the judge 
to start thinking about the case as judge versus foreclosure mill. When the judge starts thinking along those lines, the entire narrative of the case changes. It's no longer just about collecting a debt. It's about them violating orders signed by that judge. Judges don't like that. But if you simply write angry emails, you won't get anywhere. You need to file motions that are well-founded and well-written and supported by case law, rules of procedure, and statutes. You need to file memorandums of law in support of motions to compel or in support of motions for sanctions. The banks have so far been successful in getting nearly everyone to think that foreclosures are about documents and paperwork. That is a false premise. And that false premise has led to millions of illegal foreclosures. Foreclosures were designed to be and are by law required to be about money. It is not enough to follow the money. You must make it easy for the judge to get mad at your opponent. That's when the tables turn. You're asking the wrong question often, but you have the right idea. There are plenty of cases nationwide saying that enforcement of a mortgage without owning the debt is not allowed. You can't transfer a mortgage without a concurrent sale of the debt where value is paid. But that isn't enough. And that's where most pro se litigants get tripped up, and even some lawyers. The answer is that it's procedure stupid like the old thing, it's the economy, stupid. The burden is on you to rebut the legal presumption that the claimant has paid for and does own the debt. So you have the presumption that the claimant has paid for and owns the debt, and the burden is on you to rebut it. The presumption that they do, that they did pay for it and they do own it, arises from presentation of copies of what appear to be facially valid documents. Once again, I will caution you about just taking a quick look at those documents because when you look at the signature block, you may see that they're not facially valid. Or if you look at what's actually stated on them, you may see that they're not facially valid. They're not standalone documents that don't require reference to some other document which is not being presented, like a power of attorney. Sometimes a close look reveals that the documents are not facially valid, and that will give you added ammunition. But as we've seen in many, many cases, that alone does not carry the day with the judge because they come in with that bias. The way you get from point A to point B is through discovery. It's like one of those pictures where the more you stare at it, the more you see. Assuming they have not paid for the debt, which is a pretty safe assumption, and they don't own it, and they don't have any authority from anyone who does own the debt, your question should be about ownership, agency, and authority. And they won't be able to answer it. And that's exactly what you want. That's exactly what changes the narrative if you know what you're doing. So start with proper discovery demands that are clear and to the point. Don't beat around the bush. Each demand must be distinct and not require reference to several other demands. 
So if you have an interrogatory, the question should be simple and not complex. If it's complex, there are various grounds on which they can legitimately object to the question. Your discovery should be aimed at what they will not or cannot answer. It must also be relevant to the case. So if it is a foreclosure for restitution of an unpaid debt, then you have every right to question the ownership of the debt and the transactions by which value was paid for the debt. Most, nearly all, judges agree with allowing that discovery. But if you let it slip and fail to file motions, then you're snatching defeat from the jaws of victory because that presumption is going to stand unless there's been a court order entered that requires them to answer the question, produce the documents, and respond to the request for admissions. We know that nearly all claimants in foreclosure don't own the debt, never paid for it, and have no legal authority from anyone who did pay for it. The banks will try to make you prove that assertion. That's a rabbit hole. Don't go down it. They can't foreclose unless they do own the debt. That's the law. But it's presumed that they do own the debt, and you must rebut it. They tried in the mid-2000s to bring foreclosures in the name of services and the name of mortgage electronic registration systems, MERS, and other representatives, and they were knocked down by the courts. At that time, some of you might remember, the banks emphatically denied the existence of remic trusts. Then suddenly the trust appeared armed with documents that asserted there was a trustee who had received an assignment of the mortgage and an endorsement of the note, meaning title to the debt. None of those parties ever paid for the debt because the debt was already paid for by investors who bought certificates that were labeled mortgage bonds, a label that was later abandoned. The problem was and is that we have no law that allows someone to foreclose when they have not paid for the debt. So the banks invented fictitious entities and fictitious documents, and uh, the entities appear to have documentation, and then the documentation is used to create legal presumptions that they must have paid for the debt even though they didn't. The rebuttal to those presumptions is a simple Missouri show-me. If they can't or won't back up their presumptions, they lose the presumptions. But that doesn't happen unless you ask, and even then, they keep the presumptions until you get a court order requiring them to answer, and even then, the court might allow them to keep the presumptions unless you move and get an order of sanctions against them which might be as much as striking their pleadings or preventing them from putting on evidence. That would be a motion in limine, uh, that kind of thing. It could also be an award of fees or fines, etc. That's where those cases come from, where the foreclosure mill and U.S. Bank, or the foreclosure mill and Bank of New York Mellon have been fined or sanctioned. That's how it happens. 
if they refuse to show, even after the judge issues an order to show, then they place themselves in the crosshairs of the judge who now sees the case as judge versus foreclosure lawyer rather than lender versus borrower. That's a whole different narrative. And that's what I mean by taking control of the narrative. And when you do your discovery, be as precise as possible and be uh, and have definitions, but beware of how definitions might be construed as extending a discovery request into multiple discovery requests, and therefore uh, some of your key questions might be kicked out because it exceeds the maximum number of requests. So it's a little complicated, and it, again, like I always say, you should get advice from local counsel, but you certainly should talk with local counsel um, and, and uh, lawyers, uh, to the extent lawyers are listening, the, um, uh, look carefully at the rules and, and recent cases, because there have been several cases where the definitions basically expanded the first question asked and none of the other questions were therefore answerable. Interrogatories should be directed at what? They should be directed at ownership of the debt, agency that is implied, authority that is either stated or implied. Request to produce should be the documents that support those answers. In some jurisdictions, you're allowed to combine interrogatories and a request to produce. Request for admissions. Don't forget interrogatories. You can ask, is it your position that? So uh, that's, that's an allowable interrogatory. Request for admissions are helpful along with, in Florida, it's 57.105, where you send a letter that says you have no case, you don't own, the, your client doesn't own the, uh, uh, the debt, and therefore uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the lawsuit is uh, uh, completely erroneous and uh, unsubstantiated. That creates a safe harbor after which, if the judge finds, as has happened in several of my cases, that that is true, that the so-called trust, even if it exists, never owned the debt, you might still be able to get attorney's fees simply because they pursued a claim that had no merit. Always file motions to compel. Always file motions for sanctions. And then after you file motion for sanctions, file renewed motion for sanctions, and ultimately a motion in limine, which says they didn't answer questions regarding ownership of the debt. Therefore, they should not be able to put on any evidence to the contrary. Also, beware of making timely objections to the pretrial catalog of witnesses and exhibits. Sometimes the judge will put out a trial order which tells you the time window in which you can do that. If you fail to do that, 
It may be that things that were previously barred are now able to come in. And that, my friends, is how it's done. There are still plenty of lawyers out there who take cases and who understand how to do this. And they do win many of their cases. Unfortunately, too many lawyers have abandoned the plight of homeowners who are victims of wrongful and fraudulent foreclosures. We here are ready to help you. Of course, we have the next two weeks of holidays, and I wish you happy holidays and good luck in your ventures and good night. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.